this Lord's Day morning in the book of Hebrews. So open your Bible with me in the New Testament to the book of Hebrews, to Hebrews chapter number 11. And when you get there, don't turn me off because when you get there, people say, oh, we know this chapter. The danger of familiar passages is that they are familiar passages. And so people come to them and they think, I know that already. I would argue that there are many things we do not know, even from the familiar text, and of the things that we do know, we often are not doing with them what we ought to be doing. And when you come to Hebrews chapter number 11, you come to the classic passage, the great summary passage on faith. In fact, that's the way the chapter starts. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then it begins to detail for us, walking through the halls of time, that the lives of men and women of faith, I think sometimes we even say great men of faith and great women of faith. May I just say to you this morning, there's only one that is great, and that is our God. And you've got to put the great on the other end. They may be people of great faith, or they may be little people with little faith, but they are believing a great God. You see, faith never leads you to man. It always leads you to God. Faith takes you beyond the preacher. So would you get beyond me today? Would you look way beyond me? Would you get beyond this pastor and get beyond this church and get beyond yourself? And would you turn your eyes upon Jesus? Because that's really what faith is all about. Now, Hebrews 11 is not only about faith, it is also about family. And that's, that's where we're coming to today. A faith has to be individual. It has to be personal. Nobody can trust God for you just because your mom and daddy are saved doesn't mean you're saved. Just because your grandparents knew God doesn't mean you know God. Every generation must believe God for itself. And every individual must come to know the Lord in a personal way for themselves. But when you come to Hebrews chapter number 11, you find something that I think is fascinating, and it is this. There are three families described for us in the hall of faith. So in this long list of individuals, you have three families. Let me show you what I mean. In verse number 7, you have a family. It is Noah's family. Because it wasn't just Noah that got on the ark. Eight souls came off that ark. Noah, the Bible says, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. So you have a family in verse number 7. It's Noah's family. Then if you skip to the end of the chapter and look beginning in verse number 23 and the verses that follow, you have Moses' family. And if you're wondering where I'm coming back to tonight, tonight we're going to look at Moses' family. In the early service, we looked at Noah's family. Tonight, Moses' family. But sandwiched between the two, you have a great family. And I say great because of the size of it and what God chose to do with it. And in fact, this family takes up the bulk of Hebrews chapter number 11. It is the family of Abraham. Would you read with me a little bit, beginning in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 8, where the Bible says, By faith... Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. God always connects faith and obedience. He obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also, Sarah, that's his wife, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age 
because she judged him faithful who had promised. And therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. So look, you've got a, you've got a husband, his name is Abraham. You've got a wife whose name is Sarah. Now skip down to the end of the story. Look at verse number 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. So stay with me now. You got daddy, that's Abraham. You got mama, that's Sarah. You got a son named Isaac. Remember, he was the one taken up on Mount Moriah and laid down on the altar and was going to be offered as a sacrifice, and God provided a lamb in his place, a ram caught in the thicket. And then look at verse number 21. By faith, Jacob. Well, who's Jacob? Well, this is the grandson. So we're, we're on a little spiritual chain reaction here. You ever line up a bunch of dominoes, knock the first one down, and watch them fall? The dominoes are falling. You ever stand on the side of a pond and drop rocks or pebbles into the middle of it and watch the ripple effect? The ripple effect is going to the shores of eternity. It's Abraham, it's Sarah, it's Isaac, it's Jacob. Look at verse number 22. By faith, Joseph. Who's Joseph? Well, that's, that's Jacob's boy. So we're moving here from generation to generation to generation to generation. And by the way, generations change. Generations are different. My grandpa was an old-timey mountain preacher in the hills of West Virginia. I may tell you a little bit about him tonight. He was just raw bone, leather lung, peel the paint off the walls. Had an old-fashioned tent he'd take around. He'd set up and he'd preach six, eight, ten weeks. They'd have hundreds of people saved, and they'd start a church out of that. And he, was, he had no education. He was a little rough around the edges. He got up in the church one night, got carried away preaching, and said, Bless God, there's two things no church needs. That's a clock on the wall and a busy-bodied woman, and this church has got both of them. That wasn't a good thing to say at all. He didn't stay in that church very long either. And he didn't have a lot of couth, but he had the Lord on him. And matter of fact, I was preaching a revival meeting some time ago in a church. I didn't know it when I first went to preach at the church. But my grandfather started that church. And uh, at the end of one of the meetings, I was standing in the lobby, and a man came out, an elderly man, and he said, did you know your grandfather? And I said, no. He died when he was 57, died before I was born. And I said, did you know him? And he started crying. And he said, preacher, he said, I didn't just know him. He said, he led me to Jesus. He said, he was preaching on the day I got saved. And he said, after church, he took me out back behind the old country church, and he baptized me in a pond they had out back. <laughs> And he started laughing. He said, you know those words preachers say when they put you under the water? I said, yes, I know those words. He said, he must have been practicing because he held me under for a long time that day. That was a generation, and it was a great generation. It was, it was the World War II generation, the greatest generation. Somebody said, then there's my daddy's generation. Oh, I thank God for my dad and mom still serving Jesus, been married almost half a century, and faithfully serving God together and happy in the Lord still. That's a generation. Then there's my generation. And I'm very grateful to God for the wife that God has given to me, my Sarah, to, to believe the Lord with me and obey God with me. And what a wonderful journey we're having together. And now God's given us Morgan and Lauren and Grant, another generation coming on behind. It's, it's like a relay race. It's not just about what you receive. It's about what you relay. It's about what you pass on to the generation following. And so when you come to this passage of Scripture, excuse me, sir, ma'am, it's not just about you. It's bigger than you. 
It's supposed to start with you, but it's supposed to outlive you. Let me tell you what's going on in the verses we just read. Here's a man who is building a household of faith. Ironically, he never built a house. In fact, I can prove it to you. Everybody look at verse number 9. Where did they have to live? God bless Sarah. Where did they have to live? They didn't get to live in a subdivision. They dwelled in tabernacles. That's a nice word for tents. I was traveling through Jordan years ago, and I looked out in the desert, and there are still Bedouin people there setting up tents and driving their flocks. And I thought to myself, in this modern age, you still got people living like nomads, moving from place to place. That's what God called Abraham and Sarah to do. They're living in tabernacles. They didn't build a house. They didn't build a city. Matter of fact, look at verse 10. He looked for a city which hath foundations, watch it, whose builder and maker is God. Verse number 16 said, God prepared for them a city. There are things God never let Abraham build. Oh, but I tell you today, God let him build the greatest thing anybody ever gets to build on planet earth. God let him build a household of faith. That expression is found in Galatians 6 and verse number 10 for the local New Testament church. That's what a church is. It's a household of faith. Everybody look around just a minute. Would you look around? Don't look at me. Look at the people sitting around you. And not just your family. Look at the other families. Turn and look at them. Do you see them? Wave at somebody. It's nice to see them. Isn't it nice? Do you know what you're surrounded by today? Somebody said, yes, I'm surrounded by friends. Well, I hope they're friends, but they're more than friends. Somebody says, yes, they're fellow church members. Well, I hope they're fellow church members, but they're more than fellow church members. You're surrounded by family today. That's what you're surrounded by. We have the same father, which makes us brothers and sisters. That's why God's people ought to get along. You know, there's a big family reunion being planned at the father's house real soon. And we're all going to be together for a very long time, so you ought to get some practice on it now. It's wonderful to be a part of the greatest family on earth. It's the family of God. God started the family. The psalmist said God sets the solitary in families. And when God began the local New Testament church, he made it a family of believers. It's wonderful. But watch this, please. God not only wants this to be a household of faith, I submit to you today, God wants your family to be a household of faith. And it's sad. But most people spend a whole lifetime building everything but that. They build a name. They build a reputation in the community. They build a retirement. They build a savings account. They build equity in a house. They, they build and build and build and build and build like Solomon built. And then they get to the end of their lonely lives and they look back and they realize that they've been building the wrong thing all along. That they've built all the things that really don't last. You know, the older you get, the less some things mean. Have you noticed that? And the more other things mean. Let me just tell you, when you get to the end of time, the only thing that's going to matter is this. Did you believe God and did you teach somebody else to believe and obey God? And Abraham built a household of faith in God. A few years ago, when we went into full-time evangelistic work, we moved back to West Virginia, built a house out on the old family farm. And um, we we built during an interesting season. I, I still remember that. A certain time of the year, a friend was helping us build the house. And honestly, we had a great time building it. But I learned so many things about building a house. How many of you ever built a house before? 
Yes. How many of you would never do it again? I'm just curious. Yeah. That's what most people say. Because when you build a house, you learn so many things you didn't know. You learn that the design actually matters. I mean, the blueprints actually mean something. You learn that the quality of the building materials is going to make a difference in the long run. You learn that the builder better know what he's doing. You learn lots of things about building. And I think when you come to Hebrews chapter 11, what God is trying to teach all of us from this one family and from this one principle of faith in God is that there is a right way. It is God's way if you want to build a lasting legacy of faith in God. Listen to me. If you want to leave something behind when you leave this world and have something to meet when you get to the nail-pierced feet of Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, then you've got to do it God's way. So if you want to build a household of faith, how do you do it? I want to give you four things, and I'd like you to write them down today, and they're all found right here in our story in this beautiful example from Abraham's family. Number one, would you write it down? If you're going to build a household of faith, first, you've got to have a foundation. Now, remember, he's looking for a city that has foundations, plural, whose builder and maker is God. That's a reference to heaven. Read the book of Revelation. The Bible says when you get there someday, it has 12 foundations. That's pretty interesting. That sounds immovable to me, like it's not going to change. That's the eternal city that God is building for us to live in. But that's not the foundation I'm talking about. No, I'm talking about the fact that if you're going to be a man or woman, a family of faith in God, there has to be some foundation for your faith. All my life, I've heard preachers preach this passage and say, Abraham and Sarah stepped out on nothing. That is inaccurate. They did not step out on nothing. They weren't lunatics. They weren't crazed people selling their house in Ur of the Chaldees, packing bags and getting on camels and going through the desert just for fun. This wasn't just an adventure land for the family. No, no. They were following divine instructions. They were heeding God's command to them. Watch this, please. Their faith was built on the very same thing our faith must be built on, and that is the unchanging word of God. All may change, but Jesus never glory to his name. We're living in a changing world. Things are shifting and shaking and changing. But I declare to you today that the truth of the word of God does not change. His truth endures from generation to generation. There's a lot of things you can't pass on to your kids, but I'm going to tell you what you can give them. You can give them the truth of the word of God. They're going to have to believe God for themselves, but you're going to have to give them God's truth because it's the only sure foundation. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Let me show you something. Look at the passage with me again. Every time I stop, you say the next word out loud and circle it in your Bible. Look at verse number 9. Ready, class? Here we go. By faith, he sojourned in the land of... Let's review. When I stop, you say the next word out loud. All right? Everybody with me? By faith, he sojourned in the land of... As in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same... Hmm. Look at verse 11. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had... Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the... but having seen them afar off. Look at verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the what? Offered up his only begotten son. Anybody notice a pattern in the passage? Well, look, please, Abraham, somebody said, Abraham, what a great man of faith. He just had real faith in God. Let me tell you about Abraham. Abraham was like the rest of us. He was a weak man with a lot of questions and a whole lot of uncertainty, but he had one thing that he anchored his faith in, and that was the fact God promised and God always keeps his promises. 
Everything God foretells, he always fulfills. It is impossible for God to lie. Why? Because our God is the God of all truth. So if God says it in his word, friend, you can build your life on it. You can build your family on it. You can build your future on it. You can build your eternity on it because it's the foundation of all true faith in God. We were building our house. It, it came a monsoon season in southern West Virginia. I still remember that. And I was on the road preaching, and our builder called me, and Steve said, he said, Scott, he said, I'm trying to get these footers right, this foundation right. He said, but the rain just keeps coming and coming. He said, I brought in pumps. He said, we've been pumping water. He said, you wouldn't believe how much water we've pumped out of these footers, trying to get them ready to pour the foundation. And I remember saying to him, hold up, just let it dry out, let it pass. He said, I thought you was in a hurry. I said, I'm in a hurry, but I want a house that lasts. I, I want a foundation without cracks in it. I want something that's sure to build on. Look, who cares how great it all looks from the upside and from the, from the manward side if there's not some depth in it, if you're not rooted in God. Dear Lord, give us some families who are rooted in the unchanging promises of the word of God. In a world where people are living in despair, somebody has to have hope. In a world where people have questions, somebody's got to have the answers. In a world of unbelief, somebody's got to have faith in God. They ask old George Mueller near the end of his life. <laughs> Mueller had not only had to believe God for his family, he took in thousands of orphans over the course of his life. He had these orphanages, and you know the story of Mueller. He prayed in the bread and didn't ask for a dime, and God provided. And when Mueller was an old man, somebody said to him one day, they said, Mr. Mueller, you seem like you're still a happy man. He said, I am a happy man. He said, for the last 69 years, he said, I've read through my Bible four times every year on my knees. And he said, for the last 69 years, I've been a happy man. Happy, happy, happy. That's what he said. And then they say, well, how'd you get so many answers to prayer? How'd you see so much accomplished? How'd you stay on the sunny side of life? And they said an old Mr. Mueller smiled, got his Bible, and struggled to get down on his knees. And when he got down on his knees, he opened his Bible, he put his finger on a verse, and he looked up to heaven. And old Mueller said this. He said, every morning when I got out of bed, he said, I opened the Word of God, and I read till I found one of God's promises. And he said, then when I found that promise, he said, I put my finger on the verse. I looked up to heaven and I said, Lord, you promised and I'm claiming this one today. And he said, for the last 69 years, God has never failed a single day to keep his promises. Listen to me, church. All the promises of God in Christ are yea, and in him, amen, to the glory of God by us. God has never failed you. He has never forgotten you, and he has never forsaken you. And he's not about to start this morning. Have faith in God. John said, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And somebody said, well, I need more faith, preacher. How do you get more faith? You're not going to get more faith by just listening to me talk about it. You're going to get more faith by getting in the Word, letting the Word get in you, because the Word is what builds you up on your most holy faith. If you want a household of faith, you better start with a good foundation. There's a second thing you need in the household of faith. Would you write it down? Abraham had it. There was not only a foundation, there was instruction. How many of you have children or grandchildren? Would you raise your hand, please? All the parents and grandparents. All right, you know what I'm talking about. You've got to give instruction. There's got to be instruction in the household. Somebody, look, kids, look, all you young people, listen to me just a second. I know you don't like listening to it right now, but someday you're going to be given it, so take real good notes right now. Because the reality is... Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. That's what the Bible says. 
And so Abraham, watch this, not only received instruction, he gave it. Everybody look at verse number 9. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles. And notice what the Holy Ghost tells us, with Isaac and Jacob. This is not just the story of Abraham. This is the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and right on down the line. You see, you, you are connected to all those people that God has graciously given you to make this journey with. And look at the end of verse number 9. They were the heirs with him. Would you circle those two words? With him of the same promise. Let me ask you a question. How do you think Isaac and Jacob carried on when Abraham was gone? I'm going to tell you how. They had been taught the same promises that God gave Abraham. Watch this. And their faith was not in their daddy. Their faith was in a greater father. Their faith was not in Abraham doing right by them. Their faith was in God doing right by them. This is how it goes on from generation to generation. This is the spiritual connector that has to be made. Look, there must be instruction. Matter of fact, let me show you something. Let's take a journey just for a second, all right? Mark your place. Don't lose Hebrews 11 coming right back. Go to the first book of your Bible for a moment. Look at Genesis chapter 50. This is the end of the book of beginnings. This is the end of the record of, of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And when you come to Genesis 50, Joseph is dying. And notice what he says when he's dying. Look at Genesis 50, verse 24. Joseph said unto his brethren, I die. Now look at it, Genesis 50, verse 24. And God will surely visit you. That's pretty strong. That's not Abraham talking. That's, that's not Isaac talking. That's not Jacob talking. That's Joseph talking. God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land under the land which you swear, look at it, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and look at verse 25, and Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel. Would you take your pen and underline in verse 24, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then in verse 25, Joseph. Did you ever notice? That's the exact same four that are given in the same order of Hebrews chapter number 11. I love this. Do you see the spiritual handoff? It's like, all right, now look, I've served God in my generation. It's your turn. Here's the baton. And so the next generation picks it up and runs it with it for a while and then passes it to the generation in front of them. The Greeks used to have something they called the Isthmian Games. It's kind of like our Olympics. And they had, they had boxing. It wasn't normal boxing. It was steel studs on those, on those boxing gloves. Can you imagine? They fought to the death. And they had all kinds of, of wild games that they, that they had. But the, the key of the Isthmian Games, the greatest event in the Isthmian Games that the Greeks held was a relay race. And they said they would start with a line of runners here, and they all carried a torch. They, they all, every runner had to have a torch, and the torch had to be lit. And off in the distance, you could see another line of runners, and they weren't holding anything. And beyond them, where you couldn't see, there was another line of runners, and they weren't holding anything. They were just waiting. And when the gun fired, and when the race started, that first line of runners would take off. Now watch, they're not just running, they're carrying their torch. They're not just living, they're actually carrying something with them. And when they got to the next place, they had to hand that torch off to the man in front of them, and he had to take the same lit torch and carry it to the next guy. And on and on until finally they crossed the finish line and somebody's light got over it first. In fact, it became such a thing, they coined an expression for it in, in that part of the world. They said, let him who has the light pass it on. May I say to you, that's pretty good advice for all of us today. God gave you the light of truth. God wants you to live it yourself. But dear Lord, don't keep it to yourself. Give it to somebody. 
Let him that has the truth, the light, pass it on to those coming along behind it. On our way back, let's stop off in Deuteronomy just a second. You're close. Go to the end of the Pentateuch, just over a few books. Look at Deuteronomy 6. Instruction, instruction. Look at verse 2. Deuteronomy 6, verse 2. That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee. Now notice the list. Thou, number one, thy son, number two, and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Would you mark Deuteronomy 6, verse 2. Thou, thy son, thy son's son. In the Bible, God didn't just talk about one generation. He always talks about three generations. Why is that? Because like links in a chain, God says, I want this to continue. I want this to carry on. I want this church to listen to me for just a second. God has blessed your church. I mean, now listen to me. I'm not just blowing smoke. I'm in different churches every week in my life. God has done something for your church that is very unique and very unusual to see a church go on for this many generations and be this strong. It's an amazing thing. But I want to say to this church family this morning, don't you take that for granted. That can be lost in one generation. One generation away from losing the hand of God and the hedge of the Lord, the blessing and the beauty of what God is doing here. Somebody in their home has to say, hey, we're going to make sure the next generation is equipped for the battle and ready to advance the cause of Christ in their generation. Matter of fact, look down to verse number 10, same chapter, Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. It shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he swear unto thy fathers, look at it, to who? Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Isn't that interesting? Thou, thy son, thy son's son. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Let me show it to you one more time. Come over to the Psalms with me for just a moment. Psalm 78, powerful psalm about instruction. I was reading this some time back, and I came to these verses. It just jumped off the page at me. Look at Psalm 78, verse 5. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded, here's the first one, our fathers. It starts with daddy. Could all the men listen to me just a minute? I want you to know, gentlemen, God has called us to lead our families to the Lord and guide them to God. It begins with a father taking his role. Some of you ladies have been called on to lead your home and lead your children. I'm praying for you. I want you to know God will enable you, but somebody's got to initiate it. Somebody's got to get the ball rolling. So it begins with fathers. Now look at it, verse 5, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to what? Their children. You might want to write in the margin of your Bible next to verse 5. Next to fathers, you got Abraham. Next to their children, you got Isaac. And next to verse number 6, the children should be born, you got Jacob. And next to their children, you got Joseph. Do you see it? In every nation, every generation must learn to believe God. My grandpa's generation saw real revival in this country. My granddad's generation saw a move of the Lord. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm 45 years old, and I have yet to see the kind of move of the Holy Spirit of God in our land like that generation saw. And I'm hungry after it, and I'm praying for it, and I'm desirous of it. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I don't want to live and die and miss what God has for me and for my generation.
And even more than that, I'm thinking at this point less about the starting blocks and more about the finish line. I'm thinking now about Morgan and Lauren and Grant and their children and what kind of nation they're going to grow up in if Jesus tarries his coming. I'll tell you what we need. We need some men and women of faith in God to say, I may not build much in this world's eyes and nobody ever may think much of me, but I am going to build a household of faith that will last for generations to come. It begins with a foundation. It continues with instruction. There's a third thing you've got to have in the building materials. Go back to Hebrews 11. There's got to be a demonstration. Pardon me. You can't just say you believe God. You've got to live it. It's got to be more than words. You know who knows what kind of Christian you are? Not your pastor. If I want to know what kind of Christian you are, I wouldn't ask your pastor. I'd ask the people that live at your house. If you want to know what kind of preacher I am, you can listen to a sermon. You want to know what kind of man I am, you'll have to talk to this lady right here. If you want to know what kind of real Christian I am or am not, you'll have to ask Morgan and Lauren and Grant. Because I promise you, none of us are better Christians than the Christians we are in the privacy of our own home. And I don't believe Isaac and Jacob would have kept on living for God and doing right if Abraham and Sarah hadn't been real in their own household. When you come down to verse number 17, Abraham has to exercise faith in God at a difficult juncture. I was thinking about this this morning. Back up in verse number 11, they got to believe God to give them a baby. But when you come to verse number 17, they got to believe that if the baby dies, God can raise that baby from the dead. Now, that's another level of faith. Would you agree with me? I mean, you got a, you got a faith connected to the birth. Now you got a faith connected to the death. I'm going to tell you what you're seeing. You're seeing that at every stage in life and every step on the journey, you got to believe God. I don't know who I'm preaching to this morning, but some of you, you're facing the greatest trial of your life. You're struggling at this moment. Nobody knows what you're going through, but God knows what you're going through. And I'm going to tell you, the God who has been faithful said he would never leave you and he would never forsake you, and God is with you at this moment. You can believe it. If you want to learn what it means to live the life of faith, you've got to trust God at the difficult moments in life. At every decision... At every crossroads, at every moment when you need direction, every day of your life, you're learning to believe the Lord. I just believe God is able. I'm looking at a bunch of people right now who are at different stages in life. I mean by that, ages. I'm looking at a bunch of people right now who are at different stages of spiritual maturity. Let's just be frank. Some new believers, some of you have been saved longer than I've been alive. But I want you to know, no matter how old you are or how long you've been in this, there is never a moment when you can stop living by faith. Never a moment. The Christian life at its core is always a faith life. You come to trust Jesus as your Savior. That happened for me 40 years ago. I told somebody this morning, Forty years ago, a kindergarten teacher led me to Christ. A teacher led me to Jesus. I was preaching a gospel crusade a few weeks ago, and she showed up at the meeting. It was thrilling to me to see her. She led me to Jesus. I was five. I would say to you now at this juncture, I think my faith was very childlike, very small. My knowledge and understanding of things very limited by what I had experienced and known to that moment, but I trusted Jesus. And aren't you glad? Him that cometh to me, Jesus said, I will in no wise cast out. That wasn't the end of it, though, friends. That was the beginning of it. I must tell you that at this juncture on my journey, I'm having to believe God much more at this moment than I ever did back there. It's funny, isn't it? We can trust God for heaven but not for here. Like some of you, you've depended on God to keep you out of hell, and you can't depend on him to meet your needs this week. 
The just shall live by his faith. It is not a decision. It is a way of life, and it must be demonstrated every day you live. And when you do that, then you can have the fourth thing. Would you write it down? If you're going to build a household of faith, there must not only be a foundation and instruction and a demonstration, but number four, there must be an initiation. Watch, you're setting something in motion in your children and your grandchildren. When you demonstrate real Christianity in your home, living by faith, God uses that to put something in motion in the lives of other people. Would you everybody look at what Isaac says in verse 20? Isaac's getting ready to leave this world. He's getting ready to die. And I love this. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. That sounds hopeful, doesn't it? Look at verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. How about verse 22? By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. This is striking to me. All of these guys on their deathbed are speaking hopefully. Isn't that fascinating? We're not talking about a young Isaac laying on an altar. We're talking about an old man getting ready to die. We're we're not talking about a young Jacob scheming and manipulating his way through life. We're talking about an old Jacob who has to lean on the top of his staff. He's so weak, and he remembers that he wouldn't have made it if God hadn't sustained him. We're not talking about a young Joseph, 17 years old, running for his life to keep his purity. We're talking about an old man named Joseph getting ready to leave this world. Oh, I like this. They didn't just start in faith. They ended in faith. They didn't just begin, hopefully. Praise God. They ended, hopefully, and they passed it on to the next generation. And I'm going to tell you, right now in our world, we could use a good dose of hope. Would you agree with that? Depression at an all-time high. We're the most medicated generation in the history of the world. Suicide is up 300% from my dad's generation to mine. And I'm going to tell you what we need right now. We need some men and women and young people who know God, believe the promises of God, live by faith, obey whatever God says, and then teach the next generation to do the same. And if you'll do that, God will use you to build a household of faith. And if you'll build what God's called you to build, God will build what he's promised you to build. God's construction crew is a good crew to be working on. He's the foreman of this crew. He's working, and we are laboring together with God. Oh, may the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob be my God and be your God. That expression, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is found about a dozen times in the Bible. I was chewing on this last night a little bit, just trying to think, wonder why God always said it that way. Why not just say the God of Abraham? Or why not just say the God of Israel? I mean, that's overarching. That's the nation. Why say the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? And then it dawned on me, those were three very different men, very different. Abraham, full of faith. Isaac, tell me about Isaac. He never left his homeland. He, he had a very boring life. Let's just be, let's just be blunt. If you read his life, there, there are none of the miraculous things that you seem to see in his daddy's life. He's an ordinary man. And Jacob, let me tell you about Jacob. Jacob was a weak man. He thought he was strong. He thought he was somebody. He was always scheming and manipulating. But he was a weak man that had to realize how weak he was. And the only strong thing in his life was God. And it dawned on me. When the Bible says he's the God of Abraham and the Isaac and Jacob, watch please. He's the God of the faithful. He's the God of the ordinary. Any ordinary people grateful to God for that? And then blessed be Jesus. He's the God of the weak ones. Look, you may not be an Abraham. You may be a very ordinary person or 
or you may be a very weak person, but I want you to know the one thing that ties them all together and the one thing that ties us all to God is that we have a mighty God who always keeps his promises. And it is time for the Lord's people to build a household of faith. John Owen, the old Puritan pastor, went to a community, took a little church. He was so excited. He just knew everybody was going to get saved and fill the church house, and he was going to have a great ministry. And he preached for about six months, if I remember correctly, and there was nothing that happened. Not a single person got saved, nobody got baptized, and nobody joined the church. In fact, Owen would later testify, he said, I would stand behind that pulpit and pour my heart out and preach from the Bible. And he said, there was no visible move of anything, and nobody seemed stirred at all. And he said, I started thinking, Lord, something wrong with me? Am I not doing this right? And he said, then one day in prayer, the Holy Spirit prompted him, you need to go into the homes of the people that live in this community, the homes of the people in your church. And so John Owen started setting appointments in individual families, not, not at the church house, around their kitchen table. And he insisted that every member of the family be there, and he, and he did the same thing in every one of those meetings. When he would get into the home, he would pull up a chair, he would get all the family around the table, and he would ask, do you all have a family Bible? And they would say, oh, yes, we have a family Bible. And he'd say, could I borrow it for a moment? And they would bring the family Bible. And then John Owen would say, before I read to you from the Bible, I want to go around the table, and I'd like you to tell me how each of you came to know Jesus as your Savior. And one by one, each family member was called on to give their gospel testimony. How do you know Christ? And John Owen said, the first thing I realized in a hurry is we had a lot of lost church members. He said, I had taken for granted that all those people sitting there listening to me preach were actually saved people. And he said, suddenly I realized there were a bunch of these people that knew about God. They didn't really know God. And Owen said, sitting around that table, I had the joyous privilege of leading many of those people to personal faith in Jesus Christ. I say to you again, faith must always start as an individual thing, as a personal thing. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. No one can do that for you. Then Owen would do this. He would open that big family Bible, and he would read some portion of Scripture to them. Just read it. Not preach a sermon, just read the Bible. And when he got done reading the Bible, he'd close the Bible, and he'd say, now let's pray. And he would pray over that family, and he would pray his way around the table, and he would pray for every individual that was in that home by name and their spiritual needs. And when he said amen, he would slide the family Bible across the table to either father or mother, whoever was the head of that household. He would, he would slide the family Bible over to them, and he would say to them, what I have just done with your family, you should be doing every day. And he started to establish what he called family altars. It's an old term that's not used much anymore. Frankly, it's not done much anymore. And he asked families to begin to read the Bible and pray together in their homes. You know what happened? In about six weeks, they had such a mighty move of the Holy Spirit of God in that community. I mean, a real revival came to town. People got saved and baptized. They couldn't get the people that wanted to come to church in the church building. Bars started closing down. Jails were empty. I mean, the whole tenor of the community changed. And you know where it started? It didn't start at the church house. It started at their house. I'm an evangelist. You know what people want? They want some guy like me to blow through town and preach a good sermon and get everybody else right with God and turn it upside down. And I want you to know that's not how revival comes. 
Every good thing God ever starts and sets in motion, he begins in families. And I want you to know, you want to see something wonderful happen for the future of this church? You, you want to see this city reach for Christ? You want to see an impact made in this world for God? Then let it begin in your own home. Build a household of faith.